Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. All right, Philippians chapter 2, um, and this morning, I, um, uh, I was really impacted uh, by this study in my study time, personally. Um, I don't preach what I don't eat. hope you know that. Um, there's no message I can give to our church that I myself don't desperately need to hear. Um, and this is one of those for sure. So the title of the message this morning is nice and long and, and wordy. But go ahead and write this down. We're going to see uh, this unfold here in the text today. Uh, the, the big idea of today's message, the focus of this talk is living in light, living in light of the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's Paul's big point we're going to see. And he's going to lead us to live in light of that fact, to cause us to evaluate our own lives. If we have bowed the knee and confessed with our mouths the Lord Jesus, um, are we living in, congru- in, in synchronicity with that uh, confession? And so, living in light of the Lordship of Jesus, let's see that concept explained to us here in the text. Really, I want to encourage you, feast your eyes here on this passage. So important that we allow God's word to just wash over us here. Philippians 2, the verses will be up on the screen. Here's what Paul writes. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, some translations say, so then, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. This is the word of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning, as we do every Sunday. And Lord, before us, it is is our opportunity, and it is your desire for us to encounter your word, not just to study it, for a sense of upward intellectual smarts, but God, for, for it to propel us deeper, further into who you are. And that's what I pray, God, in this moment, in this time, as we're gathered here. It's my heart and our hope each and, and every Sunday morning 
that you, Holy Spirit, would have your way in this place. We're gathered here for you. And so we just anticipate that you are going to lead us. You're going to move. You're going to shape. You're going to use this time, especially now in your word, to lead us deeper into what you have for us, to, to be those that are, God, not just confessing that Jesus is Lord, but we are living in light of that truth. So, Holy Spirit, I invite you to speak through me, get me out of the way so that you can be heard. I pray you'd use what I've prepared here in a sermon to benefit your church, um, to call anyone here who, who's not worshiping you as Lord. I pray you would convict them and lead them to do that. And ultimately, God, that you would be glorified. And we invite you to speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as I said, title of the, of the sermon here, Living in Light of the Lordship of Jesus. Um, this May, it will be 14 years since uh, I took my first international missions trip. I was all but 19, I think, years old, a brand new Christian. And I went, uh, for my first missions trip, I went uh, to a landscape that is probably not as common for a first trip in the U.S. Um, I'm just curious, how many of you guys have actually taken some kind of international missions trip before? And, and for most of you, I would imagine that a lot of your hands would say that it was possibly in Latin America or South America or kind of that region. Um, that, that's kind of often where the first trip is. It's an easy trip. For me, my first missions trip was to a place called Morocco, Africa. Morocco, Africa. I got a picture for you. Check this out. 19-year-old Andrew <laughs> living large in Morocco. Yeah, beautiful. Are you wowing me or the landscape? I can't tell. Um, um, this was a, a life-changing trip for me. Um, uh, Brittany came. My wife was on the trip as well. It was uh, sort of the follow-up to a uh, an experience in a discipleship school that we went to. And there's just some phenomenal uh, ministry to be done um, in that area of Africa, of course, in the Middle East. Uh, we ministered uh, and did a lot of missions work and outreach to the Muslim world there. Um, Caitlin, who's uh, a member of our church, uh, was a missionary there for some time. You could ask her more uh, personally all about it. It was an incredible experience. Definitely, my, again, my first international trip, also my first international experience. Prior to this, I was living in the Bahamas, and that's, okay, that's another country, but it's also, it's it's the Bahamas, right? So, uh, so th there was some adjustment and, and culture shock, but going to Morocco was much different. Um, whole new world, all right? I could sing the song right now. That's how, how legit it was. Um, and it was amazing. Um, just day after day of encountering the culture there, doing missions work, and then immersing ourselves in the culture, eating the food, seeing the sights, you know, uh, adjusting to the pace. One of the most consistent meals that we would eat, almost breakfast, lunch, and dinner, was um, a, a native Moroccan dish. It's kind of famous to Morocco, and it's called beef or chicken tagine, a delicious treat. Uh, comes out on a clay pot, and the way that you eat it, also, that's kind of the cultural experience. There's no plates and, and spoons. There's a, uh, there's a plate in the middle with the food on it, and everyone's sitting around it on the floor, and you're eating it with your hand. It's awesome. I'm like, can we bring this back to the U.S. and adopt this somehow? Um, about 10 days of that, eating chicken tagine, which again, I was really open to the culture and kind of being you know, open to learning about new experiences. Uh, except there was this one night where uh, at dinner time, there were two dining options. 
Uh, at the mission's house, there was the first floor dining room and the second floor dining room. The first floor was having another meal of beef and chicken tagine. The second floor, I don't know how this got orchestrated, but they were making fajitas. Mexico in Morocco. Wrap your mind around that. They were making straight up like delicious fajitas. Now, there was a, a, a decent, you know, a limited amount of seats. Uh, plenty of, uh, there was more women on the trip than men. And, you know, any good gentleman would make sure that ladies go first and, and you know, and just kind of takes one for the team. I, um, any good gentleman. I was not a good gentleman. I'll just say that. So, I, uh, my, God, my, my God was my belly. We'll get to that in Philippians chapter 3. So I, I got there first. I got my seat upstairs, just, just passionate for Jesus and immature as it gets. And got 19 years old, got my spot, got there early, put my Bible down. Think of the irony. Put my Bible down to save my spot there at that table. And I even at one point got into a little bit of an argument with some people about how I'm there, you know, like my seat's there and, you know, like God would want me to be there kind of a thing. And, and, and I, um, you know, despite my, my um, stubbornness, I, I stayed, you know, because I'm stubborn, I guess, I stayed the course and I got to enjoy a delicious Mexican meal in Morocco, and it was amazing. I just have to say that while I was eating it. It was amazing. After eating kind of some of the same things for so long, just craving that. Mexican food is my favorite food. Um, that next morning, our entire team was late for the outreach because I was late to the bus because I was puking every bit of Mexican delight that I had devoured. Um, I was up all night absolutely losing it. Um, and, and it's interesting, that next morning, one of the leaders pulled me aside, and it was a great discipleship moment, and he took me to Matthew 23, 12. Let's get that picture off the screen. Hold on. Uh, it probably would be good, actually, for the text to be over my picture there in Morocco. That's even more, that's even more like poetic, all right? But Matthew 23, 12 is where the leader took me, and he said, you know, Jesus taught this. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me just ask uh, by a show of hands, how many of you guys have ever had an experience like that before where you exalted yourself and God graciously humbled you? Yeah, I'm sure we could all go around and share our own version. I literally exalted myself to the second floor and found myself as low as I could be in the prone position vomiting in the toilet. So um, this is certainly true. Jesus here gives us this double-sided coin of a principle regarding humility and exaltation. That those who exalt themselves in life, it's God's grace to allow you to experience humility. You know, last week we talked about humility. Uh, we talked about a humility that we should find in our lives. But Jesus here is talking about another kind of humility that sometimes finds us when we don't pursue that. It's a sort of humbling experience. But there's another side to this coin as well that also says, on the flip side, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Just a true principle about life and even eternity. The exalted will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, Peter will say, under the mighty hand of God will be lifted up, will be Exalted. Well, just as I'm an illustration to the former, <laughs> Jesus here in Philippians 2 is a great proof of the principle regarding the latter. 
Uh, Here in Philippians 2, the other side is true of Jesus. Just as I was humbled for my exaltation, the passage we just read there showed us uh, Jesus being exalted for his humility. His humility. We we looked in depth last week at the humility of Jesus. Uh, Paul is calling on Christians to let the same mindset of humility that was in Christ to be in us. And what is that mindset of humility? It's the mindset that says, even though I'm in the form of God, I'm going to become a man out of love and humility. I'm going to become a servant. I'm even going to become sin on the cross so that those who are sinful can be made righteous and forgiven. That was Jesus' humble obedience. And the key verse here, and the key really word, it's a really important word that we want to really be familiar with today. Uh, It's used twice in this passage, and it's so important. In verse 9, it's the word, therefore right? Therefore. Jesus humbled himself. It says, therefore, here's this principle at play. God has highly exalted Jesus. That's what Paul is telling us. Paul is telling us that this principle that Jesus taught is being experienced in Jesus' life. As Jesus humbled himself and became obedient, he is proof to the principle that God exalts those who humble themselves. Now, what an interesting concept. Jesus has been Exalted. This is where, where Paul is leading us to. Remember, this passage, verses 5 through 11, that we just read in the beginning there, this was an early church hymn, an early church creed. Before having leather and ink and paper and, and the scriptures to open up and study themselves, there were these hymns, there were these theological truths that the church would memorize and proclaim over each other that was sort of like the sound doctrine that was passed on from the apostles to hold the church together, to instruct them in truth. And, and the, the, the poetic sort of uh, format and um, structure of this passage, it reads that way. So many scholars believe it. In fact, in some translations, you'll see it sort of broken off as a poem, kind of have spacing and, and structured that way. And in the end of this poem, there is this height of, of exaltation where Jesus, who put himself low... This is what's interesting. God brought him high. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, humanity dishonored Christ, but the Father exalted Christ. When Jesus was on earth, let's remember, humanity did not exalt him. When God moved into the neighborhood, we did not prop him up on the platform of his throne. That's not what our species did. That's not what humanity did. When God became a man in the person of Jesus... We dishonored him. We lifted him up on a cross. And this Jesus who was humbled God, God the Father has exalted. God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now we need to back up for a second. Paul here is actually talking about a real event in the life of Jesus. It's an event called the ascension. The ascension. We know that Before Jesus ascended, he first descended, right? God came to earth. Jesus came to earth, and he lived a sinless life. And in the calendar and timeline of his life, we have his crucifixion where he died. We have his burial. We have his resurrection. But, you know, even though I grew up in church knowing these things, I think in my head I always just assumed that Jesus kind of rose and then went to heaven. But we we studied this actually last year, that for 40 days... Jesus appeared to the disciples. He taught them concerning the kingdom. And then after 40 days, there's multiple instances in Scripture where Jesus ascends 
He is like transported from the physical to the spiritual, from the temporal to the eternal. He ascends to the right hand of God. If you go to our podcast, we have a teaching in there called The Significance of the Ascension that really unpacks all that was going on here. I basically make a case for the fact that we should have an Ascension holiday, like we have an Easter, we have a Christmas. What about Ascension Day, all right? So it hasn't really gone anywhere, but... um, at least you'll come on my, my team, hopefully, if you listen to the podcast. But, you know, you get some more understanding of the significance of this. But this is, that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the significance of the fact that Jesus, in his humility, has now been appointed and exalted above all. Now, it's important to point this out, because the way that this is written here can kind of be confusing. As if Jesus wasn't God or wasn't Lord, and because he went to the cross, now he gets to be God. Now he gets to be Lord, and Jesus himself helps us out with this. Uh, right before praying for his disciples in John 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, notice this, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So this is important to remember, and it's, it's there in the text, that Jesus' exaltation wasn't this like, okay, you were obedient, and now you can be God of all. But it was instead this re-entry that Jesus had into glory. We know Christ the Son pre-existed his incarnation. He, he, he had the glory with the Father before the foundation of the world. Before the world was, Jesus was God. But in his incarnation and in his life and his death, it's as if the Father was showcasing the Son to the world. Think about that. It's kind of how I am as a dad. Every, every chance I get to showcase my Son to the world via Instagram usually, I take the opportunity. I'm, t- I'm having, by the way, I'm having a little fast right now, all right? I, um, screen time was down 35% this week, okay? I just want you to know, pray for me. Uh, we're breaking up, all right? Um, but uh, typically, I mean, there's this, this joy as a father to say, let me showcase the joy of my son. And that, that's what the incarnation was. God the son coming into the world and in his obedience God has crowned him and exalted him and honored him above all. As Jesus ascends, he re-enters the glory he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a central point that Paul is making about this. It's a four-word phrase, simply, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Last week when I said it's a four-word phrase or something, and I put it up as a completely different word. So we've come a long way since last week. (laughs) But Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what Paul wants us to sit on, to soak in, the fact that Jesus is Lord. How much Lord is he? Okay, Um, Who is he Lord over? And and Paul would say everyone and everything. The word there that that God has highly exalted him, the word exalted, highly exalted, in the Greek it literally means to super elevate. I love that. Jesus is super elevated. He's super exalted over all. Doesn't he say this? Notice this verse, uh, Philippians 2 says in verse 9, that it's the, he has the name, I love this phrase, which is above every name. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He, he's not one famous name in history among many other famous names. He is the name above every other name. Every other religious leader, Jesus' name is higher. Every other celebrity, Jesus' name is higher. There is no name higher than the name 
of Jesus. And this doesn't just speak of the fame of his name, and that's certainly true, right? There is no name that will ever outfame the name of Jesus. That's true for all eternity. You know, we live in a day and age of people making a name for themselves, right? At the end of the, at the, end of the day, um, God has made uh, a name for Jesus that no earthly name will outfame. But this also just speaks of his dominion and his authority. In Scripture, your name wasn't just like what people called you. Hey, what's your name? What's your name? It spoke to your identity, your character, your essence, your being. His is the essence. His is the being above every other being. It speaks of authority. Notice how serious this is. Verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, notice this, every knee should bow. Have you heard this verse before? Verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, it's interesting. Um, Paul is saying, Jesus is Lord, therefore everyone should acknowledge that. Every knee should bow to him because he is Lord. Um, it's not a matter of whether or not you agree with the fact that he's Lord. He is Lord. He's, you know, it's, it's, you know, truth doesn't care about our feelings, does it, right? Like the truth is the truth. Jesus is Lord whether you bow your knee now or later. He's Lord. It's kind of difficult, though, because the word that's used there, every knee should bow. Do you see that? I'm like, yeah, every, yeah, you should bow. I mean, you should, you know. I would. <laughs> I suggest you do, you know. Um, it's actually not in the Greek. That, that, that word's used, I think, to help us understand what's going on. But this is a, a, a direct pull. Uh, Paul here is quoting from Isaiah 45, where God himself says this. In Isaiah 45, verse 23, God says, By myself I have sworn, you know, because God's not going to be like, I swear to me, right? By myself I have sworn. I swear to me. From my mouth, here's what he, here's what he promises. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. In other words, whatever I say is going to come to pass. If I promise it, you can expect it. That's what God would say. And here's his promise. To me, every knee, what? Shall bow. And every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's the proper word there. Um, the idea here is if someone's like, you know, I don't, I don't bow my knee to Jesus, or I don't believe that Jesus is Lord, the, the sincere response is, well, you, you will. You will. Every knee will bow. Um, make your list. Every U.S. president will bow their knee to the lordship of Jesus, every single one. Every corrupt dictator of history will bow their, their knee to Jesus. Every celebrity, every opponent of the Christian faith, every person in this room, every person who's not in this room, every, every person in your family, all of your friends, all of your coworkers, I will, you will, we all will certainly bow our knee to Jesus and confess that he's Lord. This almost speaks to a coming day, this knee-bowing tongue-confessing ceremony. <laughs> it's almost like it speaks to the ceremony that's coming. It's at the final judgment, actually. Where all will stand before him and all will recognize the, that, that who God has honored, we should honor Jesus. He's Lord. Not just a good teacher, not just a good leader, but Lord of, of all. Um, and it's as if, like, Paul wants to be so clear that we understand there's not one person that won't bow the knee. 
that he gives us these three dimensions of the intelligent universe. Did you see that? People in heaven, beings on earth, and beings under the earth. Like, I don't know if there's anywhere else than those places. This is the, the entire intelligent universe. You could kind of understand it this way. Paul says this, that in heaven, the angels and the saints, they are bowing the knee to Jesus. In fact, you read Revelation and you just see that, that heaven is this um, corporate acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus. That's what it is. Um, for us, those of us who have loved ones that have gone on to be with the Lord, they are in joy. If they, are, if they were in Christ, in joy, they are bowing their knee and confessing with their mouth the glory of Jesus. What an awesome thing. In heaven, he says, in heaven, everyone will bow. On earth, that's believers and non-believers. Like, whether you're bowing your knee now or later, the knee bowing is coming. That's the idea. Now, the, the encouragement here is don't wait, right? Um, don't bow your knee under the weight of the glory of Jesus that forces your knee to the ground in light of his reign. Here's the good news now. You can bow your knee in response to his love for you. That's the good news. He loves you, so bow your knee willingly. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and be saved. He loves you. He went to the cross for your sin. But, but whether it's believers or non-believers, on earth, he's like, in heaven, on earth, even under the earth, the fallen angels and the unsaved uh, often have a more developed theology of most Christians. You, you know, sometimes the disciples get out-theologied by demons. You ever seen that? It's like the followers of Jesus, because even the demons believe and tremble, Right? And so there's this day coming that, that, that when you talk about highest glory, highest lordship, every single being, past, present, and future, in the entire intelligent universe, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will and shall bow their knee to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Paul is telling us. Jesus Christ is Lord. No name above his. Now, look at verse 12. Next verse. What does that word say? Someone tell me. Someone help me. Therefore, therefore, okay, put it up there on the screen. Look how prepared I am. Therefore. <laughs> um, let me say, this is, it's, this is why it's really important to study God's word in its context. Um, I wish I had, I forgot to put it up, the, this picture, but I saw, a this is part of what we're doing in Philippians. I saw this picture online, it was a coffee mug. Remember been saying that Philippians is the most coffee mugged book in the whole Bible? And it was a coffee mug, and it had on it, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. I love that. <laughs> that was the coffee mug. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. right? We, we can do that with Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so when you kind of pull that out, you're like, okay, this girl has shown no interest in me, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, all right. I like the faith. you know. Um, I didn't study for my test. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, you get the idea, right? The, the, the importance of making sure we don't cut off Paul in the middle of this sentence. We hate when people do, do that to us, right? It's like, listen to my whole thought. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because these following verses that we read, they hang and they sit in the light of that context of the lordship of Jesus. And, and so... It's a good rule of hermeneutics, and I'm sure if you've been in church more than three weeks, you've heard this before. But anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask, what is it therefore? What is the word therefore therefore? 
And here in this passage, as Paul now goes into some action, he goes into some imperatives. Paul is responding to and he's leading the church to live in light of what he's previously said, which again is the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. The therefore is so important. Hence, I gave you the title earlier, but it's living in light of the lordship of Jesus. Um, you guys know that I take a lot of time here on Sunday morning to make sure that we have developed theology and not just Christian pragmatism. Um, practicing the faith is really important, okay? Hence the second part of this message in a second. Um, Walking with Jesus, doing God's word is so important, but there's a danger to building your life without a solid foundation. And so it's so important to make sure that, you know, there's also, there's, there's extremes on both ends, right? Where it's like all theology, no practice. And it's like, well, do you practice what you know? And then there's this danger to just kind of think that the Christian life is just a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts. Or the Christian life is just some kind of like guideline for wisdom. It's, the Bible is, the whole Bible is pretty much the book of Proverbs, you know. Fortune cookie, wise ways to live. And I love that Paul doesn't give us God's word in that way. He says, this is what is theologically true. Jesus is Lord. And that is a big deal for us to really receive that and know that. First and foremost, so that we don't just go on and live certain ways for the wrong reasons. But I don't really believe that without that theological truth that I can actually walk in what God has for me. I can kind of for a time go, okay, I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to try to apply this. But when I am built, building my life upon the foundation that Jesus really is Lord of not just the whole universe, but my life. When I sit in that, it will propel some things. Now, for Paul... Uh, here in this passage, he gives the church a few things, uh, a few ways, you could say, to live in light of the lordship of Jesus. I'll give you them all at once because this never really works out with time, okay? Uh, the three ways that he calls them to live in light of the lordship of Jesus in this passage is, is to work out, work out, that's mostly for me, i got to start working out, um, but work out, that's the first thing, we're setting up a garage gym right now. It's pathetic and awesome at the same time. Um, second one is to shine bright and to hold fast. Paul would say, Jesus is Lord, therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus is Lord, therefore shine bright as his children in this world. Jesus is Lord, therefore hold fast to his truth. Let's talk about each of these real quick. Work out your own salvation. That's the first way that he leads them to act and respond. He says there in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's confusing. It's important to point out here in this passage what salvation we're talking about, isn't it? Um, it can be kind of confusing when... When all throughout the New Testament, we have this emphasis on the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, uh, apart from our works. And here Paul is saying, in light of the lordship of Jesus, work out your own salvation. It's like, well, does that mean I got to like, you know, make it to the finish line with my own works? Now, Paul doesn't say work for your salvation, right? He says to work out your salvation. Uh, who, is, who is the person that's saved at the end of the day eternally? Let's be reminded of Romans 4, 5. 
to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. This is the way to right standing with God. Paul is not saying here, work your way into God's eternal favor. Uh, That's impossible. It's also um, been accomplished already. Jesus has worked our way on his behalf. On our behalf, he worked his way into the Father's favor by going to the cross, becoming sin on our behalf. Now we are saved as those who don't work, but believe on him who justifies the ungodly. Uh, There's not a thing we need to do to work our way to God's love. There's not a thing we need to stop doing to be accepted by God and loved. There is a finished work that Christ has done that we are to receive as a free gift. I I think of like, I'm thinking of my kids, you know. They're always bringing home these works of art from school that they've completed. And uh, sometimes they end up on the fridge. You know, it's got to be good enough to make the fridge, you know. Um, There's tears. There's the fridge, there's the drawer, and there's the trash, you know. And... It's a, it's a big drawer, all right? And we don't, like, throw it out in front of them, like, what is this? You know, no, we don't do that. Okay. Um, you know, imagine if, if, if Judah or Evie, they, they, they took the time and they worked to complete this beautiful piece of art, and they gifted it to me. They said, Dad, I made this for you, and I took it, and I looked at it, and I said, it's not done. Not enough birds in the picture. Right? Like, how crushing would it be if I then took out a marker and started marking up what they did? Like, now it's complete. All right? They'd be like, Dad, that's a gift to you. Right? That's my work. And I want you to think of that in terms of the gospel. The gospel is the finished work of, of what Christ has done, gifted to you. We don't need to add a thing to it. We don't need to mess with it. It's the good news of Christ. So, so certainly Paul here is not talking about working for our salvation. I think the important uh, question to ask here is what kind of salvation is Paul talking about in light of the lordship of Jesus? And again, if you've, I'm sure you've heard these concepts before, but uh, walking with Jesus in Christ, there are three tenses of salvation in the Christian life. There's first what we just referenced there a second ago from Romans 4. There is what's called justification. This idea that we have been saved from the penalty of sin through the cross of Christ, justified by faith. To be justified is just as if I had never sinned. Just as if I was always walked in the ways and the righteousness of Jesus through the cross. That's justification. Justified by faith fully apart from our works. Certainly not. Uh, certainly uh, Paul is not talking about that idea. Uh, another tense is a future tense. We will be saved from the presence of sin. It's called glorification. This is the hope of eternity. This is the the hope of eternal life, that one day we will see Jesus, we will be as he is. Easter is all about this hope secured for us through his resurrection. Um, It's heaven. It's it's the renewal of all things. It's the restoration of all things. It's the eternal obliteration and annihilation of all evil under the light and the glory of Jesus. So you have this past tense reality in Christ. You have this future hope reality in Christ. And then you have this present tense salvation. This idea that we are being saved each and every day that we walk with Jesus from the power of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is our separation from God ultimately. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus. We will be saved from the presence of sin eternally. But here in the meantime, here we are. Did you know that you're still being saved? Did you know that? 
When did you get saved? It's like, dude, this morning. You know what I mean? Through my anger or through my tendency or through my this or through my that, my insecurity. The power of sin at work in my life, Jesus is seeking to save us from that power. It's really a salvation of our, from ourselves, from the flesh, from our patterns. And so that's what, what Paul is speaking to when he says to work out your own salvation. He's saying work out, step into, walk in this salvation that God is seeking to do in your life right now. Here's the good news of it. Look at verse 13. For it is, this is so important. Check this out. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's amazing. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So this is really cool, because on one hand, this gives us the objective that the sovereign Lord has for each one of our lives. Like if right now you're struggling to know God's will for your life, Paul's like, I'll help you out. Here's God's will for your life. The thing that God is doing right now is he's working in you. This is what God is always up to in the life of a believer. He's working in us to both want his will and do his will. Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this is also a prayer we should pray for our lives. God, here I am. I'm your child and I have a will. And that will is stubborn. And my actions are faulty. God says, it's okay, I'm here to work in your life to both will and to do. Ultimately, for his joy, for his pleasure. We, we don't act in obedience. We don't walk in the will of God to look in the mirror for our own good pleasure. Look at me. We do it for the glory of God, for his good pleasure. Uh, so, so then, think about this then. This is the big idea that Paul is pointing to. Uh, living in light of the lordship of Jesus by working out our salvation. The idea here is to work out whatever God works in. This is... You know, it's more than just God's objective. Like, and this is what, it's been said this, about, uh, said this way about Jesus, as what makes Jesus different from every other religious teacher in history? Jesus is the only teacher that, that doesn't just tell you his way and teach you his way, but he empowers you to actually live in it. Muhammad can't do that. Buddha can't do that. Secular humanism certainly can't do that. It's only Jesus that, that, that not only says, here is my way, here's what I'm calling you to, but it's Paul who says that it's actually Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm going to enter into you to will and to do for God's good pleasure. I'm going to empower. Like, and, and here's where I think we can like fall uh, to the point to where we, we end up on two extremes. Like For some of us, when it comes to walking in the way of Jesus, a lot of us, we're, we're too self-confident. And we think we're the ones that are working in and working out. We get all the glory for our lives. We get all the glory. And here Paul's like, no, no, no. That good thing you wanted to do didn't start in you. It was sovereign grace. It was the movement of God's spirit that you would even want to follow Jesus. That's a work of the spirit. And we can be too self-confident to think that when I want the right thing or do the right thing, it's me working in me and then working it out. No, no, that's, that's dangerous. On the other hand, a lot of us, we can be too self-pitying. We can be too self-centered in the sense that we're not God-focused enough. So we're like, man, I can't. We're like, yeah, I know. I could never walk the Christian life, Andrew. All I do is fall into the same sins. All I do is, is practice the same patterns and on one hand, over here, the need is humility. 
you can't do it, you need Jesus. On the other hand, this person needs maturity. Okay? Humility is knowing all that you're not apart from Jesus. Maturity is knowing all that you are in Jesus. Who are you in Jesus? Yeah, you can't follow Jesus on your own. You can't do the thing he's called you to do. You can't stop that sin. But it is God who works in you. Now think about that. Add that factor. I could never be LeBron James in one-on-one. I'd like to try. Back up to the half-court line and heave it or something. But what if there was a way... For Michael Jordan to play through me. Isn't there a movie about this with little Bow Wow called Like Mike? All right, anyway. <laughs> I get my sermon illustrations from little Bow Wow movies. <laughs> sick. Think about that. What if there is a way, like little Bow Wow, that I can find Michael Jordan's shoes, and now I have Michael Jordan living in me? Okay, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Sorry. But you get the idea, right? The possibilities are endless. Now, if, if listen, think about the fact that the living God is working in you. Open up your life and your mind to that reality. Stop being so self-centered, thinking that your Christian life depends all on you. You have the spirit of God in you. You go, I don't have what it takes to stay in this relationship. I don't have what it takes to, to, to be holy and be pure. I don't have what it takes to abstain from this. You don't, but you have Jesus in you. You have God in you. And so what is the calling then? You just got to work out whatever he's working in. I love that. And the, the word work out is really important there because it's like this exercise term, right? Um, uh, it doesn't, and Paul talks about this, right? Exercise yourself toward godliness. This is a, a biblical concept. It's like spiritually working out, getting buff for Jesus. For bodily exercise profits a little. Godliness profits for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and is to come. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, you got to have a workout plan. It, it's, it's not one or the other. It's a complementary relationship where God is not going to leave it all up to you to, to work for him and live for him. He's not going to leave that all up to you. He's going to work in you. But on the other hand, God is not going to do in your life and decide in your life the things that he's empowering you to do. It's Let me let God be God. God's going to do what only he can do. But God is not going to do what he's called me to do. If that means waking up to spend time with Jesus, if that means loving my wife, sacrificing for my family, whatever that fill-in-the-blank is, we've got to work out. We've got to exercise ourselves toward godliness. I think the best illustration of this in, in, in the realm of working out, which I'm becoming refamiliarized, is when you're trying to max out. If you're maxing out on a bench, you usually have a spotter. And what that spotter does is they don't, you know, if you are maxing out your weight and you get Arnold Schwarzenegger above you and he's just like, yeah, you did it, right? Like, that's not spotting you. That's doing the work for you. Now, on the other hand, if it's more weight than you can ever handle, a lousy spotter does one of two things. Either they do all the work or they don't do any work, right? So the negative side of that is you're, like, about to die, and they're like, come on, you can do it. You might die, but you got this, right? Like, that would also be a lousy spotter. It's like, I'm, I don't want to die, okay? Help me, right? And so that spotter, he's lifting, and a good spotter, they'll, 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 they'll give you some help. They'll, they'll help support the weight, but they won't do all the work. What a great picture for how God works in us and how he calls us to work out. God is working in you a strength. He's working within you a power, but there's got to be some response. There's got to be some reciprocation. There's give. There's also got to be take in that sense where you go, God, I trust that it's your power, but I'm going to give it all that I have and believe that when I max out 
my life for your glory, you're going to make up the gaps. And he does. You're going to give me the strength that I need to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. As we do this, we start to do the next thing. Oh, i got to give you the Spurgeon quote because Spurgeon's, if my sermon doesn't have Spurgeon in it, it's incomplete, okay? Charles Spurgeon said this, Though the nature which the Spirit implants in us, though the nature that the Holy Spirit implants in us through Christ is perfect in its kind and its degree, it is yet not perfect in its development. This is the spiritual life. It is a seed which needs to work itself out into a tree. It is an infant which requires to grow into the stature of a perfect man. The new nature has in it all the elements of entire perfection. Be confident in that in Christ. But it needs to be expanded, brought out, in the words of the text, worked out or wrought out with fear and trembling. Can we say amen to Spurgeon? Spurgeon, thank you. Can you hear me? I don't know. All right. Shine bright as children of God. That's the next thing that Paul says. You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. In light of the lordship of Jesus, you are working out whatever God's working in you because he is Lord and he's seeking to accomplish his will in your life. And we surrender our lives to the fact that we have power through him to do that, whatever that looks like. Uh, but but Paul, sa Paul says, as you start to do this, notice the next thing he says. He says that, verse 14, as you do all things without complaining and disputing, some translations say grumbling. You know, grumbling or just like, I, was, I, I can get some grumbling in my life sometimes. I'm just, you know. Verse 15, that you become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The word there, lights, in the Greek is, is uh, luminaries. Um, like we're stars in the darkness. So, so this is Paul now getting into our, our missional calling as those, and this is really important, um, again, there's these extremes. We're, we're, we're not called to hang out together as a cluster of stars. Here we are with our light, this little light of ours. We're going to keep it to ourselves. No, that's not what he says, right? No, he says, you shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, the church is not called to um, conform to culture, but we are called to live life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It can be really easy in the church to just kind of retreat to our Christian bubbles, live in this cluster of stars, do our own thing. He's like, no, there's people to reach. Um, a light is only a light if it's in the darkness, right? So, so let your light so shine. It's a missional call. You shine as lights. And I love this too. He's like, you can't make what's crooked straight in that culture. That's the work of the Spirit. But you can shine bright for my glory. Can't do what God only can do, which is make a crooked culture straight, a perverse generation pure. But you can shine bright for me as my children, living in light of my lordship. You live according to my ways, and you shine as stars in the sky. You don't allow the world to influence who you are. You, you, you look different. This is the calling of a Christian. And this is certainly like, this is so applicable to the church of Philippi, because they are a uh, a colony of heaven existing within a colony of Rome. Existing within a secular context, a secular world stream. And there is so much temptation to bow the knee to Caesar instead of Jesus. And, and to flow into the way of culture. But the calling here is not to be conformed to the world. But be transformed. Shine 
bright as children of God. Doesn't Jesus teach this? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, what's really interesting is, like, I wonder in your mind, if we could ask this question, like, if there's one way that Jesus wants me to shine bright as a star, superstar for Jesus this week, what would you say? Like, what, what is the vision that God has for our bright lighting? Um, I think we maybe we would go to, like, servanthood. We probably would go to, like, some good things, and they're all necessary. But isn't it interesting? Paul identifies these two behaviors, specific behaviors, that are really the main characteristic of whether or not we're shining or conforming to the culture. He says, do all things in culture among whom you shine as lights, do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing. Now, there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of dispute over these verses. That's kind of funny. Is Paul talking about his relationships with each other? Is he talking about a relationship with God? Don't complain about your life. Look at the birds. Don't worry. I think the answer is yes. No. Um, in all things, in every way. Here's, here's what Paul says. You can be different in culture by just trying this. Ready? Being a person who models the peace of God in everything. The peace of God in everything. You're not grumbling and you're not complaining about life, about God, about circumstance. It's so easy to grumble, isn't it? We have like a built-in grumbler, I think, you know? That we've got to constantly like turn off. I was grumbling a lot yesterday. Um, Brittany would disagree, but that was sarcasm. Um, doing projects around the house, and it's just like there's a way for the world to just get into us to the point to where we're just like in the name of Jesus, in the name of righteousness, we're not at peace. Our peace is too dependent on external things. And that complaining spirit, like if we're, listen, if our lives are in the hand of God, if we're complaining about our life, we're complaining about God, right? We're like, God, you're doing something wrong. So, so Paul is like, here's how to be a light. Model a peace within. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Be at peace. Let the peace of God surpass all your understanding. Keep your mind on him. Especially like when you're in the line and it's long at the grocery store, especially in Boca, and it's contagious, right? The person, like you didn't, you don't even realize you've been waiting 10 minutes. You're just enjoying the day and someone behind you is like, shouldn't they get a second cashier? <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, right? <laughs> Grumbling's contagious, right? It's like, yeah, you're right. Look at these problems. It's crazy. And you don't want to be self-righteous like you should learn patience. You don't want to be like that either. But just a peace that's just like, yeah, you know, how you doing? You, know, you could actually like be used by God, ask what's going on in their life. A peace with others, a peace with God. There's just something about peace in a chaotic culture that's a witness for Jesus, man. It's a bright light for the kingdom. Uh, lastly, I invite the band to close us out here with this last one. The last thing that Paul calls us to do in light of the lordship of Jesus is to hold fast to the word of life. I love that. Jesus is Lord. He's exalted above all. There is no name higher. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to the glory of Jesus. Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
shine bright as children of the Lord in a, in a wicked and perverse generation, modeling a life of peace with God, with others, and within. And lastly, he says, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to God's word. What a great description for the truth of God's word. You know, God's word is called a lot of things in scripture, the word of truth. Um, it's a word of blessing. It's a word of security. I, I love understanding the truth of God in this lens, that God's word is the word of life. The Proverbs teach that life and death are in the power of the tongue. There's certain words, there's certain truths that can destroy you. There's thought processes that won't produce life in you, but death in you, both spiritually, physically, emotionally. But then there's God's word, right? There's God's truth. The psalmist says, this is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. That's what God's word does. That's what God's truth does. In a truthless culture, it's been called timeless truth for truthless times. The truth of God's word, it gives me life. Jesus taught this about his own word. Notice John 6, 33. 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And I think we're like, we're like Peter. When the whole crowds are leaving, we're like, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Like we know this. We know the life or death factor that's at play when God's word is filling and leading my life and when any other word is. All the other voices that God's word has to compete with. All the other voices, the voices within, the self-talk, the self-counsel. Like some of us trust our own counsel too much. In our hearts, we gotta remember, they're deceitful. You, you will lead you to believe things that aren't true, and it's not producing life. There's the voice of culture that we can often be shaped by without realizing it whether it's the whether it's you know pick a political side too the voice of culture shaping everything about how we see our lives how we see the world and then ultimately there's a spiritual battle there's voices constantly calling us to compromise and it's in that context it's in that world that Jesus is ultimately lord that Paul says hold fast to God's word this is the call in a world of competing voices, fight, strive to have the volume of God's voice louder than everything. God's word is life. He says to hold fast. I love that. To, to, to let your grip be firm. Um, it's good that we've, we've held fast, but are you holding fast? That's the question. Right now, are you holding fast to God's word? I think of Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. There's just this, this truth that's at play in our lives. Um, the word there, hold fast, in some translations it says, hold it forth. And I love that. Holding forth God's truth. Holding forth God's word. It's on the forefront of our minds. And that's a practice. That's a discipline. Because God's word doesn't stay front and center in our lives on accident, does it? 
the natural place for God's word is just to slowly find its way behind us, to slowly file its way to the back of our priorities. And the danger is if we're not holding that forth, we'll start to drift away. Our alignment takes us off. But Paul says, Jesus is Lord, therefore hold it forth. Let the word of the Lord of all be front and center in your life. The result is going to be life, spiritual life, eternal life, abundant life. So what's the principle here? Jesus is Lord. Amen? He's Lord. He really is Lord. God has highly exalted Jesus. His is the name above every other name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you believe that? Therefore, then, work out your own salvation. Shine bright as stars in a wicked and perverse generation and hold fast to God's word because our Lord, our King, He's coming. He's returning. He's a King who's come. He's a King who's gone. And he's a King who's coming again. Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.